You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down to Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, as the book of Acts has progressed, we find ourselves moving further and further from Jerusalem, which lines up again, and we've covered this many times, lines up with what Luke tells us is the goal. Way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see that Jesus commands the disciples to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Luke begins to shift the narrative of the story of Acts away from Jerusalem and even Judea, and now we find ourselves in Antioch. Jerusalem is still going to be in the picture for the next few chapters, particularly through Acts chapter 15, but less and less so as Antioch now becomes sort of the epicenter of the story and and really Antioch and beyond. Antioch, though, we got to spend some time talking about that, and that's where we're going to really spend our time today because Antioch is a fascinating city. It's located in modern-day Turkey, and the city itself was a key city within the Roman Empire. Now, the empire as a whole really represented a a city-centered 
kingdom, uh, kingdom, empire. It was city-centered, and, and it had all of this, ex- these cosmopolitan centers that really marked the epoch of this particular period of time. I mean, we think about the Middle Ages. So we're talking 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 years after the height of the Roman Empire. When we think about the cities of the Middle Ages, we're talking about these little villages and the, these areas around particular kingdoms, and, 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 but they're not big metropolises. When we look at the cities of the Roman Empire, they actually bear more in common with the modern city of today than they do with those cities of the Middle Ages and even after. So we get, when we think of Roman cities, we're thinking of major cosmopolitan cities. Now, Antioch was especially important within the Roman Empire. It was the third largest city at this particular time, and arguably it was the most religiously pluralistic. And it became that way simply because of the kind of city it was. In the Hellenistic period, when it was founded around 300 BC, Antioch sat right on the border between the Greek Empire and the Oriental Empire. And so it became a major place of trade. Then in 64 BC, when the Roman Empire conquered Syria and took over the region and thus took over Antioch, Rome made it a militaristic outpost or a military outpost. So now you've got military, you've got commerce, all of it being centered in this one major city, which again makes it into a cosmopolitan hotspot. It became a place where people from different regions all are coming together. At one point, the city of Antioch had half a million people living there. That's a big city even by today's standards. Now, with all of these different people coming from all of these different regions, speaking different languages and different customs, they're bringing with them their world, their culture, and with them comes religion. And so, as I said, Antioch was an extremely religiously pluralistic place. You've got the Hellenistic cults. So you've got temples to Zeus and to Apollos and the rest of the pantheon. You've got the the Syrian cults. So you've got like Baal and the mother goddess being worshipped there. You've got the Roman cults and so you've got Caesar worship and all the other worship that that the Romans had. And then you also have uh, uh, people like the Jews who are living there. And there's quite a significant Jewish population at Antioch during this time. So just try to imagine living in this extremely diverse place. How do all of these people, from all of these different cultures, with all of these different beliefs about gods and goddesses and how the world functions and how these gods and goddesses are controlling or impacting what we're experiencing here on earth, how do they all get along? One scholar says it like this. He says, Antioch had shared with other centers in which Hellenistic religion and philosophy had flourished the changes characteristic of the late Hellenistic age, in which the old religious cults and philosophies were tending to become matters of individual belief. Next slide. As people sought religious satisfaction for their own problems and aspirations. So this really fascinating thing begins to happen in places like Antioch, where you have all of this religious diversity. It begins to look a lot like today. It becomes very individualistic. People have got their own problems going on in their lives. They have their own desires for what they want their life to be about and what direction they want their life to go. And so they begin to choose 
which religions and philosophies they're going to adopt into their life that are going to help them achieve the goals and the desires that they have. And so it takes on what we experience today. You can believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And we'll just create space for one another to coexist. Now, this was true sort of on a philosophical level, but they also, at this time, took some measures to ensure that peace would be maintained on an on-the-ground level. When Antioch was first established, you had the Syrians and you had the, the, the Hellenistic Greeks all coming together. And what they actually did in the city is they built walls that would separate them. So, like, the Greeks could hang out in one quarter and the Syrians would hang out in another. And about the time that Luke wrote the, the, the book of Acts... There were 18 different ethnic groups that had significant population. There was much more than 18 different ethnic groups, but there were 18 ethnic groups with significant populations within the city of Antioch. And they do what people of different ethnicities do. They just kind of hung out together in different areas of the city. Now, this is the city of Antioch. Keep it all in mind as we talk about the text this morning. Luke tells us the gospel of Jesus is going to Antioch. And the reason that it's going to Antioch is because of the persecution that happened in Jerusalem. So if you think back to Acts chapter 7, there we had the story of Stephen being stoned. At the beginning then of Acts chapter 8, right after Stephen had been stoned, we're told that people who are followers of Jesus who lived in Jerusalem began to scatter throughout the Gentile world. It makes complete sense then that as people left Jerusalem because of the persecution, that some of them began to go to Antioch. If you want to put that uh, slide up on the screen here, you can see where Jerusalem is on the bottom of the slide, and you can see where Antioch is at near the top. There was a major road that would run from Jerusalem to Antioch. It was a major trade route. I believe it was called the Via Marius because uh, so, it traveled along the sea there. And so, for one, people would go to Antioch from Jerusalem because it was relatively easy to get to. You could just go on the road, and it was a well-established road. The second reason that a lot of people would go from Jerusalem to Antioch is because it was close enough that you could get to it with relative ease, but it was far enough away that it would provide some protection. By the way, we know what's going on here. We just have to spend some time fixing it after, like, the service. We got some, like, signal issues going on here, so that's the popping. We really apologize. Anyways, uh, there was enough distance between Jerusalem and Antioch that you would feel like you had some protection uh, from the persecution. It was about 300 miles between Jerusalem and Antioch. Uh, And so even if you couldn't drive a car, I mean, if the lame man could get in a car, that would be awesome. But if we didn't drive in a car, if you were traveling by foot and you averaged about 20 miles a day, that would take you about 15 days to get from Jerusalem to Antioch. The third reason that it makes sense that a lot of people would end up in Antioch is that there was a significant Jewish population, as we talked about. And so people could travel there and wouldn't have to necessarily start from scratch, but they could find, quote-unquote, their tribe. They can find their people, plug in, and those people would help them to get settled within the city. And so Luke tells us that the Jewish people go there, and when they go there from Jerusalem— Drive me nuts. Uh, When they go there from Jerusalem, they begin to spread the gospel of Jesus. And they do so by talking only to the Jewish people. Now that tells us that the Jewish people are 
or, or, or that the Jewish disciples of Jesus still think of themselves largely as Jews. They're plugging in with other Jewish people. They're not interacting a whole lot with Gentiles. They're going to the synagogue. They're doing the thing that Jewish people do. But Antioch is an extremely diverse place. And it's not just followers of Jesus from Jerusalem that are ending up there. There's also people from Phoenicia and then from Cyprus and Cyrene. Now, Cyprus is an island off the coast of Syria. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, so North Africa. You got me? All right, am I on now? All right. So, Cyprus is an island off of the coast of Syria there. Cyrene is North Africa, which would be modern-day Libya. And uh, followers of Jesus from these two places end up in Antioch, and they begin to share the gospel with... (laughs) They begin to share the gospel with Gentiles. Once word reaches Jerusalem that the Gentiles in Antioch are beginning to follow Jesus. The church does what the church has been doing up until this point. Can I get a handheld? Thank you. Thank you. Here, we're going to be in big trouble. That's all I'm going to say. I might throw something. All right. So, when the church in Jerusalem hears that the Gentile Greeks are responding to the gospel. They do what they've been doing up until this point. They send someone there to figure out what's going on and to observe it. This time, they send Barnabas. Barnabas is somebody that Luke has already introduced us to. You've got to think back to Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we have that very idyllic passage that everybody likes to look at regarding the church in its early life. There we see that the believers are devoting themselves to prayer and to the, to the teachings of the apostles and to the study of scripture and they're holding all things together. This is the picture that we love of the church. And as an example of the church living in this way, we're told about a man who goes and he sells a field, takes the, proceed, the, the profits from that sale and lays the money at the apostles' feet. That man's name is Barnabas. And Barnabas, we're told, is from Cyprus. So the church isn't sending some random disciple or even some well-thought-of disciple from Jerusalem to Antioch. They're sending a very particular person. Barnabas inhabits both the Hellenistic Greek world and the Jewish world in his body. In a unique way that so many other disciples can't, he can navigate the differences between these different groups. He stands in that middle space, which makes him a perfect agent for the work of reconciliation. He's going to be able to mediate between the church in Antioch, the Hellenistic Gentile church that it is becoming, and the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church that is down in that is in Jerusalem. He's going to be able to navigate the different worlds of the Hellenistic Gentile converts and the Jewish people in Antioch itself. He's going to be able to navigate between those who are coming from Jerusalem to Antioch and those who are coming from Cyprus and Cyrene and other places. He is going to be able to move and navigate and do a work 
that others maybe could not do simply because of who he is. And one of the things that's true about Barnabas and how he does this work is actually found in his name. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And so when Barnabas arrives in Antioch and sees all that the Spirit has been doing there, he encourages them. And it's through that encouragement that this wonderful work begins to happen in the church. Now, now when Barnabas encourages the church, I think he does it in a way that's surprising and unusual. The word encouragement in Greek is a compound word. It's, it, the word is parakaleo. So there's two words in there. The first word is para, which means to come alongside of or beside or side by side. The second word is kaleo, which means to call, to invite, or to summon. All right? It's, you put these words together, it literally means to come alongside of and to invite. To stand side by side and call someone to something. Right? It's to say, I'm with you and let's go. So how does Barnabas encourage the church in Antioch? Well, we're told that he encourages them to stay true to the Lord and to be committed to God in their hearts. But what does he do? And what he does is actually pretty surprising. He goes and gets Saul. He travels to Tarsus, and he tries to find Saul. Now, this is roughly 12 years after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. We don't know much of what Saul has been up to during these 12 years, but we do know where Saul began. Saul began in Jerusalem persecuting the church. He then is on the road to Damascus, is converted, and then goes to Tarsus for a time. And now Barnabas after seeing what's happening in Antioch and desiring to encourage the church, is going to go to Tarsus, find Saul, and then take him to Antioch. And when he's in Antioch, who is Barnabas and Saul? Who are Barnabas and Saul going to be working with? Well, the people in Antioch. Well, who's in Antioch? The people who left Jerusalem because of the persecution that Saul oversaw. So just. So just notice here what Barnabas doesn't do. Barnabas doesn't encourage the church by clapping his hands and going, well done, well done. I mean, you guys are doing a great job. Man, we just want to encourage you. We want to support you. I'm just here to love on you and, and, do the th- and, and, and tell you what a great job you're doing. I mean, maybe he does that. But if you're one of the people who fled Jerusalem because of the persecution, and now you're in Antioch, and Barnabas says, hey, I want to encourage you. You guys sit tight real quick. I'm going to run up to Tarsus, and I'm going to come back with the guy who was persecuting me. Are you like, oh, man, I feel loved. This is, this is great news. This is what I signed up. I was like, yes, I signed up for this. No. And yet this is the encouragement. It makes me wonder if the conversation that Barnabas had with the church in the Antioch didn't go something like this. 
hey, I love what you guys are doing, and the Spirit is doing amazing things here, and I want to encourage you. I want you to stay devoted to the Lord. Keep doing what you are doing. But we're going to go somewhere else. I'm going to come alongside of you, and I'm going to invite you into a new thing. And where we're going to go is going to be hard, but I'm going to be there with you, walking side by side as we go to this new place. Here's what's going to be hard. Do you remember Saul, that guy who was persecuting you? When Jesus captured Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus told Saul that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I think that time has come. I think that time has come, and I think our church, this church, the Antioch church, is going to be the epicenter of Paul's or Saul's ministry to the Gentiles. And so I'm going to go get him. And then I'm going to bring him back here. And we're going to be reconciled to one another. And then we're going to get to work. And we're going to reconcile us ourselves to the church in Jerusalem. And then we're going to reconcile us to all of the different people here, these people groups. We're going to figure out how to do life together. And then, and then we're, going to set, we're going to go out. And we're going to reconcile all people everywhere to Jesus because that's the work that he's about. And what happens from that point forward when Saul or Paul goes and gets Saul and brings him back to Antioch, what happens from that point forward is that the Antioch church becomes one of the most important churches in the history of Christianity. It is a church on mission. It is a church that is breaking down walls between Jew and Gentile and all kinds of other people groups. It is a church that is, is, becomes a new mission outpost from which the Jerusalem church begins to spread. It is a church that is incredibly diverse. I just want to show you this real quick. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 1. I just want to read this first verse to you. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, just a list of names. But these are the names of the leaders of the church in Antioch. And, and, and just real quick, here we go. Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus. Simeon the Niger, or literally, the, the word Niger would be translated black. Simeon the black. So he's, he's a black guy. Then you've got Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene, remember, North Africa, so an African. You've got Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which tells you that this is a Roman guy whose family was well-connected politically, that he would have been brought up with one of the political leaders of the day. So it's a, it's a rich, politically connected Roman guy. And then you've got Saul, the guy who's a well-trained Pharisee who used to persecute the church. This is the leadership of the church of Antioch. And somehow they all get along. And get along so well, in fact, that Saul's three missionary journeys begin with the church in Antioch. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what this does in you, but for me right now, like, I'm actually, like, I got goosebumps. I am buzzing with excitement because this is a church I want to be a part of. Honestly, like it's a vibrant 
church. It is a church that is seeing new people come to Jesus. It is a church that is full of diversity. It is a church that, because of that diversity, is learning how to reconcile with one another. It's learning how to, to talk with one another. It is a church that is constantly learning new things. And because it's constantly learning new things, it is a church that is unbelievably messy. And at the same time that it's doing all of this work and seeing people come to Jesus and it's incredibly diverse and they're learning how to be, do life together, it's also a generous church because when they hear about the famine that is going to hit the whole entire Roman Empire, they send money down to Jerusalem to help people out. Like this is a church that is neck deep in the work of reconciliation. And honestly, I want to be a part of it. Like, this is a church that excites me. This is a church that sort of hits me in all of the right places. And then one sermon that I could give would be to be over here and be like, okay, and here's how we become this church. We're going to list out four steps, and these are the things we're going to do in the next few years, and this is what it's going to look like. Buckle up, because we're going for a ride. But I'm not going to preach that one. Because I think it's completely possible to become so enamored with the fruit of this church or a church like it that we miss out on why there's fruit in the first place. There's this thing about the Christian life. I don't know if you've noticed it. But when you, when you witness the Christian life lived as Jesus intended it to live, it is, it's beautiful and it's inspiring and it's attractive. I mean, when you, when you see the generosity of people, when you experience the overwhelming kindness of individuals, when you observe people who give their lives selflessly to these big causes and make significant impact in the world, when you come across people who are uniquely grace-filled and genuine, it is natural to go, like, what those people have, I want. And then we work really hard at trying to become that kind of person. We develop new habits and we start new projects and we give ourselves to work and to volunteer and to try to become that kind of individual. We build relationships with folks. We say yes to projects over and over again. We do this thing over here. We do that thing over there. And then in the end, we simply end up exhausted. Or we, as a church community, we see another church and we go, oh man, I, I wish we could be like that church. I wish we could do those things. And we, so we try to do all of the activities and implement all the programs and take on all the processes and we try to meet all of the needs and we try to do all of the things. And in the end, the abundant life that Jesus talks about is not something we experience except for the fact that we experience it as overabundantly busy. We're tired. And I think that the reason that this is such a common story within Christianity is that we end up focusing on the fruit and we neglect or forget why there's fruit at all. So let me ask you, why is there fruit in Antioch? Why is the gospel doing these amazing things within the church? What did Barnabas see that made him rejoice when he first showed up there? Luke has this really simple line that I think we can overlook. He saw the grace of God, or he saw what the grace of God had done. In other words, the work that was happening, the things that were happening, the fruit that existed in Antioch was there because of the grace of God. 
the fruit that exists in your life and my life is there because of the grace of God. The fruit that's in the life of others around us, when we get to hear stories of people's lives being changed and them being restored in new ways, that's there because of the grace of God. Everything we do stems from Jesus, or the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and his his work at regenerating the hearts of sinners like you and me. The fruit that exists in the world stems from Jesus showing mercy and kindness to those who are undeserving. The fruit that exists in the world comes from Jesus never letting go of the dignity of every human being, no matter what they have done and no matter what has been done to them. The fruit that exists in the world stems from the grace of God to bring life from death. And when we get the chance to see that grace at work, we should be like Barnabas and should celebrate and rejoice. The reason that we do anything in the world at all, all of the work of restoration and reconciliation that we do stems from the fact that God is already at work doing it. And so what we do is not try to manufacture it on our own, but come alongside of what God is doing. What we have the opportunity to is not to make it happen, but to be witness to the grace that God is doing it. And when we get to be witnesses to the grace, hopefully, in our hearts, we find the energy The energy to say, yes, that is what I want to be a part of. That is what I want to give my life to. Now, I make no bones about it. Doing this work is really hard, and it can be exhausting. But I think the grace of God, when it takes hold of us, and when we get to see the grace of God at work in the world, we say, that work is worthwhile. That feeling of being tired in my bones, it's worthwhile. I'll do that work. Not because I have to. Not because it's what I need to do in order to receive salvation or to win God's approval. But I will do that because it is another opportunity for me to see what the grace of God has done and is doing. Maybe the best work that we can do right now is to keep our eyes open for the grace of God at work in the world around us. Maybe the best work that we can do is simply asking where. Where is the opportunity for me to experience grace? And maybe that begins by asking, where is the opportunity for me to experience grace in my life? Because maybe you're the one that needs to experience grace. Maybe you're the one who's beating yourself up. Maybe you're the one who's feeling like you need to continue to work and to do and to prove and to be enough. Maybe you're the one that needs to experience the grace of what Jesus has done and is doing. And and maybe there's an opportunity for you to see that work in the life of someone else. Maybe a neighbor or a coworker or a family member or wherever it is. 
Where is the opportunity in your life to experience grace? To say, did you notice God over here? To be an encourager of seeing the grace of God at work in the world. To be one who comes up alongside and invites people to and says, come on, let's go. Let's go see this. Let's go do this. Let's, let's, let's encourage one another side by side, invite one another into a new way of experiencing God's grace at work in the world. Maybe in that way we'll be like Barnabas to one another. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. But by focusing on the grace of God in our lives and in the world, maybe the vibrancy of the Antioch church becomes one that we know as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for people like Barnabas who rejoice at the grace of God at work in the world and then call us to see even more. I pray that you would help us to focus on the grace of God. The grace of God that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be the reason for everything that we do. May it be that which our hope is founded upon. And may the work that we do in the world be as a witness to that grace. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.